What's up, Military Millionaires? I'm your host, David Prey, and of course, I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Alexander Felice. And today, we have Dia Lu on the show, who has a pretty cool story. She is an engineer-turned-attorney who went from uh, $0 to $100,000 in rental real estate about 13 months and doing short-term rentals. And she now owns nine doors, and she spends her time traveling and teaching other people about investing. And so she's getting to travel and do some renovations and stuff and really just kind of control her life, which is awesome. And so we thought it'd be fun to have her on the show and talk about how you too can start doing that. So welcome to the Military Millionaire Podcast, where we teach service members, veterans, and their families how to build wealth through personal finance, entrepreneurship, and real estate investing. I'm your host, David Perret, and together with my co-host, Alex Felice, we're here to be your no BS guides along the most important mission you'll ever embark on, your finances. Vehicle 1, you're clear to depart friendly lines. Roger, Vic 1, Oscar Mike. Dio, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Why don't you uh, give a little bit of your backstory to the audience? Okay, cool. I am, I was actually born in China and I came here when I was eight years old. And so my parents were pretty poor graduate students and I, we kind of survived about a thousand dollars for a family of three per month. And, but because it's compared to China, at first I thought we were bankrolling it just because we actually bought a used Mazda. And I remember my parents were so proud just because in China, everyone, no one, well, in China, no one actually owns a car just because they wanted a car. So the fact that we had a used car was amazing. And so we actually took all these photos in front of the car and sent them back to everyone. So that's that's how, uh, so I thought we made it already. And then I realized that we were, I was getting invited to all these class parties for birthdays. They were at Chuck E. Cheese's and I, we couldn't afford Chuck E. Cheese's. And so I was like, wait, I don't think I'm actually that wealthy or successful. And so my early definition of success was basically use Mazdas and Chuck E. Cheese's. Uh, And then my parents kind of raised me to uh, think about traditional W-2 jobs as the pinnacle of success. So basically good grades, good school, rinse and repeat, get a good W-2 job, et cetera, et cetera. And so I started on that journey. I went to UT Austin, started doing biochemistry as my degree, and then try to be even more of an overachiever and added chemical engineering to that mix as a double major. Graduated, went to law school with a full ride scholarship. And so at this point, I was trying to go on the traditional attorney path, et cetera. And so I thought that I had made it because I graduated with minimal loans and, and then I went to a prestigious Waishu firm. And it was at this point that I realized that I entered a totally different world than what I was used to. Um, this girl who thought Chuck E. Cheese's was the most amazing thing in the world all of a sudden she's talking to all her colleagues who are talking about Porsches and et cetera. 
and taste expensive tasting menus and, and whatnot. And so not only did I feel a little bit out of place, it, I also saw a lot of people on the hamster wheel for decades with the golden handcuff syndrome, and, which just means that they make a lot of money and they also spend a lot of money. And so I decided to look in elsewhere for some other definition of success at that point. And that's when I stumbled upon the financial independence movement. And thereafter I stumbled upon real estate investing. So I told everyone I was going to start real estate investing. Um, the problem was I, I didn't know anyone in the real estate world. I didn't have any real estate investing or any sort of investing experience. And I wanted to move back to Austin, but I didn't know how to do that. But long story short, I was able to get started by moving back to Austin with a new lawyer job and start with a house hack project as my very first real estate investing journey with as my very first real estate investing experience. And then I went to short-term rentals just because I was really interested in the fact that it really depends on how well you know technology as well as automation and Airbnb and VRBO algorithms. And that was right up my engineering background alley. And so I just kind of started doing short-term rentals only. And so within about 13 months, I went from about zero to 100K net rental income. And that was just with three or four SDRs or short-term rentals, and now I have nine, and I pretty much just do this full-time now. Yeah, that's awesome. So you got to go to the, the, the tried and true. Mom and dad tell you, go to school, get a good job, retire, buy a house. That bullshit that we know does not work. <laughs> and then you went, um, and you get that debut job, and you find out it's not that all that's cracked out to be. And so you go and buy short-term rentals. What if that doesn't work? What if that stops working? <laughs> I think you're, you're trying to imply that I could just always pivot. Um, so I, I've actually really failed or pivoted or however you want to call it many times in my life. And so I figured that a lot of, in fact, a lot of people actually told me to not invest in my very first short-term rental. And a lot of these people were people who didn't invest at all in real estate, much less short-term rentals. And so I definitely had a lot of people who told me to not do it, not purchase it, not make that leap. And, you know, I did it anyway, just because I ran a lot of numerical analyses on it. Um, and so I just went for it and I got a booking within the first 20 minutes of putting my listing online. And that's when I knew that it was going to work. Yeah. Well, what if Airbnbs don't work so well in the future? Then what, what's your, what's the next plan? Um, so there's always going to be some sort of hospitality industry to meet the supply and demand in terms of travel. So before Airbnbs, there was, there were already hotels. There were also vacation rentals. They were just not run. They were just not listed on Airbnb. And so 
honestly, I think in the future, I'm more focused on potentially hotels as well as converting multifamilies that are already long-term rentals into short-term rentals. So you're going to increase the cap rate by quite a bit whenever you do that and therefore increase the valuation. I think we talked about that doing um, uh, multifamilies as, as Airbnbs. Um, yeah. Off, off thing. Uh, yeah. So when I first got into rentals, I had the same, a similar uh, situation where I called up my uncle who's done very well for himself, but he did it the hard way, you know, saving money on a W2, but he's done, he did well for himself in life. And I called him up and I said, Hey, I'm going to buy these. Um, this is before Airbnb was popular. And I said, I'm going to buy a, a rental property. And he goes, Oh man, that sucks. That's a terrible idea. You know, don't do that. Tenants, pain in the ass, toilets, all this stuff. I said, okay, well, what's the, um, what's the easiest way, you know, to invest and make money? He goes, Oh, well, there is no easy way. You might as well just do rentals. So, uh, <laughs> um, but I like that story because yeah, like you, you get advice from people who've never done it and then they tell you not to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even when I told my dad that I was thinking about doing real estate investing full time, he was like, what a waste. You went to law school, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, and by the way, my parents didn't want me to go to law school. They thought that was a waste. They wanted it to, they wanted me to go and get a PhD in the sciences because that was the golden grail in my family of scientists. So. So, you know, I've, 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 I've dis- disappointed my parents mul- multiple times. So this real estate investing journey, just a new form of disappointment. Yeah. Law school and financially independent. What a turd. That's so <laughs> bad. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So obviously you're doing all right. You, you're netting a decent amount of profit off these single families. Are they all in Austin? I say single families, I meant short-term rentals, but are they all in Austin? No, actually, only my primary residence is actually in Austin. And so they're all in traditional vacation rental markets around the USA. And I kind of diversify a lot in terms of my holdings, specifically because I'm only doing short-term rentals. So I have to hedge against black swan events because, I mean, 2020, so, so of course, uh, so some of them are beach rentals and some of them are ski rentals and I'm looking into more cities as well as maybe mountain towns um, that are not just ski towns right now to further diversify. So are you trying to buy in places that you want to visit so that you can visit there? Is that kind of the goal or, or is it more just because vacation rental spaces are make more sense for short-term rentals? Vacation rentals towns are lower risk in terms of facing potential future short-term rental regulations. So Austin and a lot of other urban towns, because the primary people who are going to buy these houses are going to be for primary residents, they they tend to enact a lot more short-term rental regulations than towns where most of the houses are already either vacation rentals or they're secondary homes. So the owners are not usually there. So they do also rent them out on VRBO or some other platform whenever they're not there. So the local politics is just a lot more favorable. 
I actually really like that answer because I think one of the big fears that a lot of people have with short-term rentals are the regulations, right? Like I was in Hawaii, they did some pretty, they've had some pretty crazy strict regulations about uh, Airbnbs over the last couple of years. And there's a lot of places like that. So I think that's actually a point that a lot of people might miss with short-term rentals is yeah, if you invest somewhere that is traditionally short, like vacation rentals, right? Like they, they know that like, especially like a, a mountain town like that, right? they probably don't have a whole bunch of hotels and they know that's where a lot of their, their guests come from is tourism. So they're, they're probably less likely. I mean, it's obviously possible, but they're less likely to create any kind of regulations that would hinder that. And I think that makes sense. Does that apply to like smaller towns though? Cause like Vegas axed short-term rentals in the whole city. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So and like Orlando, isn't Orlando tough on short-term rentals, but yeah, but it is a difference. Um, hotel lobbies. Yeah, so definitely there's some hotel people, uh, hotel interests that lobby for short-term rental regulation. The other one is just really homeowners who don't want all these people with their suitcases rolling around maybe their apartment building or their condo building or they're around their neighborhoods. And so it's both parties that you typically want short-term rental regulations. Um, and But it's really, both of those interests are typically not as successful in lobbying for these sort of regulations in traditional vacation rental towns. For example, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, or Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, they're, they've had vacation rentals, just not Airbnbs per se, but they're, they're vacation rental cabins for decades. So they're not going to enact super prohibitive restrictions um, on those particular types of towns. So it doesn't really matter as much on the size of the town as, as much as kind of which people are, what kind of political interests are there at play. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Are you, I guess my next question on, on that vein with owning, you know, short-term rentals in a million different States is what are you having to do with an entity structure to run that? Right. Are you having, are you finding like, would you find it easier say you own three rentals in three different States? Do you build an LLC in each state? Do you own them in your own name? Do you just give the LLC access to operate in each state? I'm just kind of curious, like how you run that from a business standpoint, owning, you know, potentially nine rentals in nine states or, or however that works out, or are you honed in on one or two markets specifically? So in terms of legal structure, I think one, of course, they have to talk to their real estate attorney or their, their tax person, et cetera. But what I ended up doing, and I do have vacation rentals in different states, is that I have one LLC, but then I have registered to do business in the other states. And so that's a couple hundred dollars to do that, depending on which state it is. Of course, each state is going to have uh, different laws for that. But for me, that just made a lot more sense rather than having multiple LLCs. I know, of course, other people might have different preferences depending on their specific situation. Where's your port? Where's your stuff located now? Um, so they are mostly based in Texas and New Mexico, but I'm also looking in Colorado, Florida, et cetera, right now to expand my portfolio. Also looked a little bit in Tennessee in my road trip recently. And how are you buying them? You buying them? How are you, finan- you financing them? 
I assume? Uh, so yes, most of the properties are finance properties. They were purchased when I had the W2 job for conventional financing. And now I'm doing them with more creative financing methods like assumption deals and owner financing, as well as I did one that was just cash recently as well. Nice. I like it. So I actually, uh, over the last two or three months, I've taken, I guess, two like short little thinking trips or whatever. Like I went up for like one night in this little tiny town called Idlewild in California. I mean, I don't know what the population is, but you know, I could walk from the cabin into like the heart of downtown and back in like 10 minutes. And the town is like, you know, a three-way stop. Um, and I would just, I went up there, I crashed in like some little remote cabin and an Airbnb for the night. And then I went back up like a month and a half later for like two nights. And I just really liked the town. And then I started looking online, like, man, I'd love to buy a little place up here and maybe do some Airbnb. And I realized very quickly that a lot of people do that. Like the town is almost all Airbnbs because of that. And the people who owned before and were able to like, the prices are super inflated if you wanted to own a house because of the rental income people are driving in. So I think I've experienced just... I can see why that would be valuable in a little market like that. Like this was, I mean, a 1905 one bedroom shack. I mean, the thing was <laughs> like, I can't imagine that the renovation budget was more than like, Oh, copper piping. That's been here for a hundred years. That looks rustic. Yeah. Let's just leave that. Um, you know, like the, the <laughs> snow was melting off the roof and the bathroom floor was so wet. I felt like I needed one of those yellow signs and I loved it. And I went back there again and it was awesome. And the prices for these places are, you know, nuts for even, even California, just compared to what, like the amount of house you're buying. And I think a lot of that is because of the short-term rental, the vacation. I mean, they were all vac They were all full. It was, um, so I think there's something to that niche. And I personally love the idea of like a high altitude cabin in the mountains. Um, are you for that? Are you thinking Colorado, like ski resort areas? Or are you thinking more like, you know, you think like smoky mountains kind of tucked away in a like secluded uh, in the woods or do you, do you find any difference between that or? There's definitely different niche markets specifically to Colorado. A lot of the ski resorts are so well known that the real estate prices are really, really high. And also there are specific management companies that really dominate the market in terms of managing all the buildings and you have to use on-site management, et cetera. So there's a lot of, and then finally markets like Denver and et cetera, they actually have a lot of short-term rental regulations. So it kind of really depends on what kind of short-term rental strategy you have. There's different types of tourism. So there's of course people who travel for work, uh, whether they're for tech companies or they're for military when the, or for renovation projects or whatnot. And then there's people who are traveling for fun, for music concerts and et cetera. Those are usually in the urban destinations, sporting events, motorcycle events, et cetera. And then of course there's the natural attractions like beaches, mountains, et cetera. So when it comes to Colorado, I think the ones that apply the most are going to be for corporate when it's Denver, et cetera, um, or it's for the Rocky Mountains, or it's going to be for ski resorts. 
What's up, military millionaires? I have not done a good enough job talking about syndication opportunities. So for those of you who don't know, I have been investing in some apartment complexes over the years, as long as, as well as a bunch of other stuff, but I just have never really mentioned it on the podcast. So I apologize for making that hard to find. Look, if you are an accredited or sophisticated investor or unsure and would just like to talk, go ahead and go over to the investor from militarymillionaire.com slash investor slash and just fill out the little form. Let's jump on a call and talk. I'd love to hear how we can help each other out. So some of the opportunities that we provide can be anything from really big cash flow advanced, uh, opportunities to big equity plays. We do. I, I even do some private lending type stuff, but lots of different opportunities out there to invest. And I just want to make sure that you guys understand those are out there. So if you're interested in syndications or private money, you know, I'd love to jump on a call with you. There are ways that we can help you out. You can help me out. We can help everybody out. Win, 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 win situation. Our most recent deal was 146 units, uh, 7% preferred return, and uh, projected 18% plus return on investment. But we've done better. We've done not quite as good with more equity play. Like, lots of different opportunities, right? And if you want to be, there's a separate email list that I have, which I send those deals to. And if you want to be on that list, then let's schedule a call and jump on it because we need to know each other if I'm going to be sending you information on these opportunities. I would hate for you to miss out on it just because of my ugly mug not telling you. So if that sounds interesting, let me know. If that does not sound interesting, enjoy the show right now. Dia, I have eight single family rentals. They're all long-term rentals. I need you to convince me to convert them all to short term. So the first question, whenever I ask people, uh, when, whenever they're considering converting their long-term rentals into short-term rental is where they located. So not every single long-term rental is going to be a good candidate for a short-term rental. Um, if it's in the right location, you can get mm -hmm. as much as 10 X your net rental income. I've seen that for downtown Austin, for example, but if it's not in a right market, you're not necessarily going to see that much more cash flow just by converting it. But it's, I personally like short-term rentals a lot more because if you understand the marketing and the search engine algorithms and et cetera, and your design is on point, you really can get a lot more cash flow for each property. And therefore you're able to scale your operations a lot faster. And of course, something that's on everyone's mind right now, it's evictions. With a couple exceptions, for the most part, you're not going to have to worry about stuff like that with short-term rentals. You are also going to get paid upfront before people actually move into the, the property. And all of that is automated. You don't have to worry about knocking on someone's door to collect paychecks. So I, I just personally think there's actually less headaches when you actually run short-term rentals correctly versus long-term rentals. You man, do you manage them yourself, your properties? I do. And I just use a lot of technology. And of course, I use really, really good cleaners and handymen that are local to each city or town. Nice. Yeah. I would definitely have somebody else do it. I don't want to do any work. Yeah. So I can attest I have a, well, two bedrooms that I was renting on Airbnb out of this house. Now, now it's just one because I have a, a roommate for a while. Um, and I do the cleaning myself just because for me, I'm like, well, if I can pay myself a hundred bucks to clean a bed in a bathroom, but it, de it definitely gets annoying. But I'm like, eh, 
it, the return for me is like, well, you know, I just do it while I'm like on a phone call with someone on like zoom. I put my headset on and I'm like, I just clean the, clean the bedroom and I, you know, pay myself the hundred dollar cleaning fee. But I guess my, so I, I was curious, you mentioned this. I, so I've had my, my worst, I guess my worst experience with Airbnb really isn't that bad. I've had a few kind of weird ones, um, but my worst, I guess, in terms of like, oh man, this guy's going to leave me a terrible review. Luckily they didn't take it down was the dude showed up a day early. So like the house was, someone had just moved out. I hadn't even gotten off work yet. And I get this text from my roommate, like, yo, uh, I thought you said someone wasn't coming here till tomorrow. I'm like, yeah. He's like, they're making pancakes in the kitchen. And I'm like, huh? So I get home, right? And the guy's gone and he had messaged me and he's like, you know, super angry. Like, what the hell? The bed was trashed. Nothing was, all the linen was all over the place. Nothing was made. Clearly hadn't been cleaned. And I'm like, uh, your date's tomorrow. And it was very strange to me because I'm like, all right, whatever. But my, anyway, but all that to say, my question is, what about the opposite? I've never experienced this. I've had someone overstay their checkout time by like two or three hours, but I've never had anyone say, I'm not leaving. I'm curious if you know, because I've never even looked into it or thought about it until just now, what would happen? Like, could would that be an eviction process? Or could you just legitimately have some cop show up be like, yo, short term was supposed to be out like three hours ago. I don't, I don't know. I'm curious if you've got any insight on that. So in general, of course, this is once again, state specific, the eviction process don't really come into play until someone's considered a tenant and they're not usually considered a tenant until they stay a certain number of days in your property. So normally the the guests that I have are so short-term that they're not going to be considered tenants. So they don't have the same tenant rights. And so, yes, in theory, I've never personally done this before, but yes, you technically can just say that they are now intruding on your property. And so for your, for your um, guests who showed up early, usually I have a, a lock that only works for the duration of their stay. So, so the code only works starting when they're supposed to check in and their code no longer works when they check out, uh, when they're supposed to check out. And so they're going to be not able to access before their check-in time. And then whenever they check, they're supposed to check out, they no longer, they just can't get access to the building anymore. That works. Every Airbnb that I've ever gone to has that. Like, hey, you're supposed to show up at, you know, 11. You're supposed to show up at one. And so it's like, I show up at 10.50 or whatever it is, you know. 1250 it's like the door doesn't work but at one it works and so david what are you doing so terribly wrong <laughs> how are you so bad at this you just have a well, regular so, lock what did you do wrong dude? well well so i would do the same except it's my house so what i have is i just have a garage code that opens the garage you can't access the house any other way um yeah yeah and, and, my friend here. and, and normally normally i change said code for guests or whatever, but I happen to not be around at this. Anyway, you know, it is what it is. I live in the house. So I'm not really, I'm, I had never even thought like someone's going to show up an entire day early. Cause usually I'm, so I have a 24 hour gap. So I clean the house the night before. So the next day I'm already gone for work. It doesn't matter to me if they show up at noon because I don't care. I'm not in the house. It doesn't matter to me, but I'm, you know, whatever. So I text them the code as soon as, as, soon as the house is clean. In this case, however, uh, yeah, I have no idea what went down. Like the guy literally showed up. I mean, it was like, it was even, it would have been before check-in time by like two hours before check-in time. 
but the day before, and it was, it was a same day booking for like a local, which is also kind of against my rules. Like I have it in my rules. If you're local, you need to message me before you, because I'm not trying to be the guy who's like, Oh, I just got kicked out of my house. I'm coming to crash with you. Or I'm trying to get my mistress pregnant or uh, whatever crazy <laughs> reasons people decide to just because locals generally speaking, if they're showing up at a house on like a two night stay, it's usually not because of some really great, like, let me just get away and move into a HOA for a vacation. Right. Like it's, I use Airbnbs locally all the time. Cause I want to throw raging parties. I was gonna say it's usually for a party or they got yeah. kicked out of a house or they're trying to meet with someone that they don't want anyone else to know that they're meeting with. Right. It's like, I never thought about that. That's, this is, that's a light bulb right there. That's a, that's an idea. Are that you gonna, getting dating advice right now? <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. That, that idea is I'm going to take. Yeah. The so rest of your advice, David, like usual, I'm going to reject you. Oh, my God. So, you know, so I, I, I have it in there, like, don't but whatever. But, yeah. Um, anyway, for all so, I know, my roommate let him into the house. I don't even know because the garage so, yeah, look, wasn't tell used. Me, tell me about some of this technology that you use. Uh, so for example, for that particular problem, I normally just use August locks. Uh, there's, there's a specific brand that I recommend that syncs with August and then August in turn syncs with Airbnb. And so you can actually just, whenever someone books on Airbnb, you can actually just, you don't even have to generate a code. Airbnb then just communicates with the August lock that is physically located on your door. And then it, it now has a pin pad code that only works for the duration of this guest stay. So you don't actually have to do anything. You don't have to send the guests any instructions for the lock. They will automatically get an email. But there's a lot of other technologies as well for detecting noise, detecting how many devices are using the Wi-Fi in your property and et cetera. So that will be some of the tools that you can actually use without having actual secure security cameras in your property to detect a party or a potential party. Yeah, mm. I like, there's I like 14 the noise devices. One for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's some. Really yeah, so if cool you have ones. 14 devices, um, and it's only supposed to sleep three, you might get a little suspicious. Why are there 14 devices using the Wi-Fi? Well, he's obviously got three laptops, a cell phone, and a burner phone for every one of them. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe a house party. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's other, uh, there's other software that my buddy Neil uses to like determine what the market rent should be. Uh Air DNA, things like this. Are you familiar? Yeah, yeah. So I use Air DNA a lot. There's a lot of, uh, there's a couple other similar technology as well. But Air DNA is a great um, tool to kind of determine the rental comps, so to speak, for any sort of market that you're about to invest in. And of course, I always caution people with using Air DNA because Air DNA is just going to have the median or the average of for each different category in terms of performance. So for example, the gross revenue, a lot of people just kind of use that as, as their comp, but realistically, unlike long-term rental comps, where if the rental comp is $1,300 a month, you're probably going to get plus or minus $100 for your property when you rent it out. But for short-term rentals, if you actually look at people who are in the 25 percentile, meaning that they 
are not they are only better compared to their competitors they're they're only at about 25 percent relative to everyone else there's in terms of revenue then they're revenue numbers are going to be a couple thousand dollars less than the person who's performing at the 75 percentile meaning they're actually better than 75 percent of their competitors so So, like long-term rentals uh this i love this point right long-term rentals which is why i like them are essentially a commodity and so it's like the market rate says that this rental is worth 900 bucks and i don't really care if it's much nicer you're gonna get 900 bucks I don't care if you're provide a much better service, you're going to get 900 bucks plus or minus a hundred, like you said, 50 bucks. But with Airbnb, um, it's a service. It's a, you can actually do a much better service, get a higher rating. And therefore you can command a higher price because people want to pay for the nicer stay. And so more so than just um, the house size as a commodity, then you can actually charge more if you provide a better service. That's what you're saying. A better service and that that doesn't just mean customer service that also means understanding the airbnb or vrbo algorithms and so it's very similar to the concept of search engine optimization but conceptually the more you're able to land on the first few pages of airbnb search results the more you're likely to get higher occupancy rates and therefore higher gross revenue and also if you're design is really, really cute or Instagrammable or Pinterest worthy or whatever you want to call it, a lot of times you'll actually get a lot more in booking value just for that. Uh, Just imagine you're scrolling through a lot of Airbnb listings and you see one that's beautiful versus one that is that just looks like a, a college dorm which one are you going to book and are you willing to pay just a little bit more for the first listing yeah and that i mean that speaks volumes pictures right photos are huge for uh the difference in fact i think airbnb does a really cool thing where when you first get your listing or whatever they say hey uh your pictures are cool whatever we're gonna we will send you a professional photographer and we'll just take whatever their fee is off your first booking. And I was like, that's brilliant. Like, great. Someone that Airbnb recommends shows up at my house. I wasn't even at the house, show up, take Mm -hmm. their pictures, post them. They did everything for me. And then it just came out of my first rent and their pictures were a million times better than what I took because Alex has seen what I'm capable of with a a camera. And uh, (laughs) it's uh, it's a good thing I got auto uh, focus. Your whole camera setup now only looks good because of me. Yeah, you're you're welcome. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm I've been thinking about this for a while. I'm gonna probably do it at the beginning of the year, where I'm gonna transfer all. Uh, I'm gonna go with, start with one, but I'm gonna start swapping over my long-term rentals to Airbnbs. And so I'm trying to figure out some of the strategy. I don't have that much um, house style. I have a lot of personal style, but I don't have that much house style. And so, uh, but I, I have ways to. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna sub this out to some of my my social my social friends who have style, but I, I think about these things, right? Obviously pictures are kind of in my wheelhouse. Um, I don't know the Airbnb algorithm or anything, but these are the good things to know more so, like you said, than just produce the house as a commodity. You got to make it stylish. You got to make people and send people to want to stay there. Mm-hmm. And I've actually had people who ask me what my personal availability is and they try to custom they try to move their travel dates around so they can stay on my property. So if you actually put 
a lot of effort into your interior design, it really pays off in the end, literally. That's good to know. I'm very surprised to hear you say that, Alex. I like it. I look forward uh, to hearing how it goes. Well, it's complicated, you know, like uh, I'm lazy and I want to get paid more without having to do any more work. And I already own all these assets. And so, and then I watch my, and then I watch my friend Shelby making a ton of money on Airbnb. So I'm like, I want to get some of that cash money. Yeah. Oh, it makes sense. Oh. Did she lock up? Uh, either that or she's doing a very good, uh, what's that game where you, I think she locked up. She hung up on us. Uh oh. COVID. Bro, I know. I've been stuffy for like two days. Hey, let me turn my video. See if she'll. Oh. I did that on purpose. Yeah, oh. she gone. She gone, gone. She gone. You ever watched uh, Gas Station Encounters on the uh, on YouTube? Mm hmm. Yeah, gas uh, station. Yeah, sure. well, I thought you got mad at something I said. No, no, I I'm sorry. My apparently my Wi-Fi connection or something was it you know, on my too or? too many devices. You gotta you gotta stop that party. <laughs> yeah, definitely partying up here, guys. <laughs> That's what they should make. The next thing should be where it just shuts the Wi-Fi off, right? Because that would kill the party without even needing to text. You don't even have to say, "Hey, what's going on there?" It's like everyone's phone just gets disconnected and it'll just they'll just disperse <laughs> or tear gas i don't think that if you could i don't think you can install tear gas dispensers in your house i don't think that's legal yeah, I mean, neither is having a party when you weren't supposed to in an airbnb yeah you know same level. level of legality there's same level <laughs> same level of uh no, totally the same yeah you use too much soap i guess i don't think that anyway uh so I was, uh, I was narcissistically talking about my own properties, but converting them. So uh, this is all good information. I'm very thankful because I'm sure there's other people who have uh, regular long-term rentals that are our listeners. And, you know, you want to maximize that asset. I don't, if, if it's sitting there and it's making me $900 and I know it could be making me 2,500 a month. then I, that's obviously an opportunity that I want to take very seriously. And so mm -hmm. I don't know that much about Airbnb, but I'm thinking about it. So I know there's other listeners that are thinking the same thing. They might not want to go out and buy something specifically for Airbnb, but I know there's people that we have that have long-term rentals that might want to convert them or think about it. Even if it's like, I'm in Fayetteville, it's not like a big tourist town, but I know people do come through there. They visit family, whatever they're doing stuff. So I know there's an opportunity to make more money. So I think 2021, I'm gonna start switching some of my stuff over. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Keep, keep me updated. Yeah. You're have one, right. You're going to know immediately if it's a good idea or not. When, how? I said, if you do it to one within a month, you'll know if it was a good idea or not. Yeah. And what's, well, what's have, the, what's the risk, right? There you go. I mean, cause what's, what's the risk realistically? Like if you have a tenant who decides to move out, takes a month, takes, takes you two weeks to turn it over. Right. Well, what if you just, you know, I mean, you've got the cost of furnishing. That's basically what you're out. Yeah. Like that's your risk. That's, that could be, I mean, if you really can jack up, you know, an extra 500 to a thousand a month in rent, which you can, depending on your market, right? Totally worth the risk. Mm -hmm. Of course, and you're not going in blind. You technically should have done a lot of due diligence on your competitors as well as your marketplace and et cetera. So I want to mention that short-term rentals is 
is extremely um, micro neighborhood specific. So it's not just which zip code is really great performing, but it's also which street you're on and what how walkable it is and just kind of how attractive in general that particular block is for STRs. And in that in turn kind of depends on all the different sources of tourism that come into that particular town and as well as near that's near that particular neighborhood. And it also just depend on a lot of other things like what amenities the guest is looking at when they're traveling to that town. And so that can differ a lot depending on what the source of tourism is. So for example, skiers might want a fireplace, but that might not be as important to someone trying to book in Florida. So, but a lot of people in Florida that are going to beach destinations they really care about uh, hot tubs and pools and et cetera. So the amenities that people care about are going to be different, of course, then um, also, you have to understand how sophisticated your competitors are. So if your competitors are mom and pops that only have one listing and their photos are cell phone photos, you're probably going to have a lot easier time in becoming the number one listing in town than if there's hundreds of thousands of competitors that are professional companies that do this across the USA. So there's just a lot of different factors that whenever I talk to someone and try to see whether or not they should convert their long-term rental into short-term short rental, or if, should it, or if they should buy a short-term rental, those are some of the considerations that we talk about. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, I'm yeah. working through it. So this is very helpful. Yeah, I Thank like you. it. Good stuff. All right, so there are a few questions that I ask every guest. And the first one is if an 18 to 19 year old is to walk up to you and ask you for advice about short-term rentals or life, you know, whatever, what, what do you, what would you tell them? What do you wish you'd known when you were 18? Well, I wish that, um, I think that the, what, if I, I would have told myself at 18 to take a lot more risks, which, and not just blindly follow the advice of parents. But of course, I probably should not tell that to most 18 year olds if I don't wanna become the number one hated person in the USA. <laughs> so that's a, that'd be a, that's a very envious title. I'd be envious if I had that title. I, had that. <laughs> I, I so. think that's great advice. Uh, I mean, maybe not the don't follow, don't, 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 don't listen, don't blindly follow your parents, side might be i could see why people might not appreciate that but you know what the idea of taking more risk at a young age is absolutely you know i mean if, if there is a time to take risk it's when you are younger and you can afford to recover right like a 70 year old can't afford to put everything they own up on a flip someone who just got out of college probably can i mean depending on their you know finances or whatever so i wish i'd been way riskier at a young age for sure for sure all right, cool. Next one is resources. Uh, what is a, a resource, book, course, website, whatever that you recommend to anybody looking to get into uh, real estate in general or short-term short rentals? So I actually have a mini one-hour course that I talk about a lot of the con considerations here that we mentioned 
briefly today. So there, I get asked a lot of different questions about people who are considering converting an existing long-term rental into short-term rentals, or basically where should they invest in short-term rentals and what kind of questions they need to ask. So I've condensed all those questions into a one-hour course, and that's available currently for $47. And it's basically just answering a lot of the questions that you, or rather it's asking all the questions that you need to ask in your initial due diligence process. And it gives you exact checklist of everything you need to figure out before you make that leap. Awesome. Well, and it's found um, on my site at dle.com. Perfect. And we will make sure we link to that. And then I was going to ask, my next question was going to be, where can people get a hold of you? Is the website best or is there a better spot to reach out to you personally? They can email me at dlu at gmail.com. And they can also direct message me at um, on Instagram at dluesq. Yeah, are we Instagram friends? Uh, are we? I don't know. We're. I think we're. Elite. Not, I know we're Facebook friends, but I don't know. They don't call it friends on Instagram. Jesus, David. Do I've we never... follow each other? <laughs> I think that's the right question. Get, get yeah, with the times, okay. Alex. <laughs> I was just curious. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. I've actually, this is good. So I like short-term rentals like the idea of gotten to play around with it a little bit in my house, but I like the idea of buying short-term rentals in places that you would like to vacation. I think that's cool. Um, and I've got a friend who does something similar and I've always been like, wow, you know, like that's a good idea. Like if I want a vacation somewhere, why not own a house there that also cash flows? Um, so I think that's cool that you're buying in sort of these niche vacation rental markets across the country where you can, you know, go spend some time and visit if you want, which is, I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I personally am also just kind of a lot of times I kind of make my investment decisions just more on cash flow. But I know a ton of people who actually just want one single vacation home and they actually just want to be able to make enough on Airbnb income or short term rental income to completely let someone else pay for their vacation rental home. And so that's definitely a really attractive strategy for someone who might not exclusively focus on short-term rentals, but they they might just want one ski cabin or one beach house or one lake house. Yeah, that's cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. This has been awesome. And I am sure that a lot of people are going to reach out to you because I think short-term rentals is a, kind of a hot topic still, especially with to date this recording with Airbnb going public tomorrow on the stock market. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's gonna be good. So I'm excited, and thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from militarytomillionaire.com/podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show, give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.